This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Today, we have a special guest, our friend Simon Rosenberg. You know what Simon's been up to. Make sure to check out his Substack, The Hopium Chronicles. Always a must-read on what's happening in, in a, a take that's uh, totally uh, different and I think much more realistic than all the doom um, saying that goes on uh, today. But we asked him to come on today because... The New Republic is doing a series on what Democrats need to do to win in 2024. It's basically a playbook. And Simon wrote a really good piece on the tactical things that the Biden campaign needs to be doing. And it's been a long time since we've had Simon on. and wanted his generally optimistic and positive perspective on where we are. Uh, Simon, welcome back. Joe, it's always great to be here. Uh, hey, Alex, you drive the car. Where do you want to get started? Well, I, I wish we were recording earlier. This is one of the most fun pre-show discussions we've had in a while. Uh, that's 10 minutes I'd like to be able to broadcast. But Simon, I, I mean, we got to start on the on the positive note because overall things are pretty positive. I, if people have been reading Hopium Chronicles, which we'll include a link in the show notes, uh, they know most of this. But for our listeners, where are you right now overall? Because yeah. the we get into your piece later about how the campaign should go big and what, what we need to do on individual yeah. things. But give us some context about what you're feeling right now. Yeah, look, I have a basic take on where things are right now, which is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all across the country. And they have Trump, the most unfit man to ever run for president in American history. And so in every way imaginable, I would much rather be us than them. And I think that, you know, the, as you were getting at, I think what's beginning to happen in the economic data and even in the consumer sentiment data is that, you know, we have to, you know, I, it is my belief that step one in winning this election is establishing that Joe Biden did what he promised he would do in 2020, that he said he would get us to the other side of COVID successfully. It was the central promise that he made during the campaign. And he has. I mean, we're, you know, our economic recovery here is better than any other G7 country in the world. Stock markets are breaking records. We have the best job market since the 1960s. Real wage growth currently is some of the fastest and most robust that we've seen in modern times. The deficit is trillions of dollars less. He's made these three huge investments, these bills that are going to be creating prosperity and opportunity for the American people for a generation or more. We're accelerating the energy transition that's so necessary. So many things that he's done that have left us in a remarkable place, far better off than we were in January 2021. And I think that's really this is the first step in any re-election, which is, did you do a good job, right? Have you been a good president? I think he has been. And I think we have a very strong case to make. And I think the contrast between his being a workhorse and Trump being the show horse, right? The sort of the, the, the freak Trump show and Joe Biden's, you know, quiet, steady strength is becoming more apparent every day. So I feel really good about where we are. And I guess the second point is, and Joe, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, is that, you know, since we started talking together back in the fall of 2021, you know, Democrats have been on a remarkable run. Something really historic has happened, which is the party in power in our system always loses elections. And yes, we won in 2018 and 2020 and ripped the House, the Senate and presidency away from MAGA. Congratulations, everyone. It was a major collective achievement. But then something really dramatic has happened that I don't think has gotten enough attention, frankly, which is that we were supposed to get beat in the midterms and, and then have a bad 2023 because that's the way it always is, right? The party in power loses ground. We've actually gained ground in both 2022 and 2023, something historically anomalous. And it's a sign, I think, of their, you know, that we constantly are un underestimated. We are continuing to win elections. And 
you know, they are a big, huge mess. The country is not into MAGA. And so when we when voters actually vote, not when people respond to polls, we keep winning, they keep losing. And it's a central reason why I'm so optimistic about 2024. Yeah, no, I mean, I think two things. One is the economy. It, uh, we've talked about this a lot. The the drag of, you know, a downturn takes a while. until It's usually when you see the sentiment, consumer sentiment num- numbers start, start to pop the way they're popping. It's it's a there's a lag before people actually start responding that way in in polling. So, you know, one, I think the economy is strong. I think all the things you're talking about are true. And I think all the hand wringing about how, well, that's true. How come his he's not getting approval on the economy? I think that just that lag is is going to lift a little between now and, and November. Uh, can I, but can the, I just add one more to that, Joe? Sure, is that of course. The other thing to recognize, and, and Paul Krugman's been writing about this a lot in the last few months, is that when you break out the question around the economy by party, you know, yeah. uh, Biden's job approval with Democrats, which is, you know, 85 percent of the people who are going to vote for him or so, you know, is right now in the latest Economist YouGov poll, it's 78 approval, 17 disapproval. And one of the things we've come to understand is that this current moment, the your, your response to is the economy good is more uh, polarized than it's ever been in modern polling history. That basically Biden's getting good marks from Democrats, mediocre marks from independents, and getting like a zero with yeah. you know, Republicans, right? right? And so mathematically, so this idea that people think the economy is bad, that's not a true statement. Republicans think the economy is bad. Um, the second thing is that when you look at other ways of measuring people's life, you know, satisfaction, life satisfaction, job satisfaction, income satisfaction, even now new data showing uh, perceptions about how people are going to do in the next year to two years in their own economic life, these things are remarkably positive, right? I mean, life satisfaction figures are up in the high 70s. Job satisfaction figures are the highest ever recorded in polling history right now. Income satisfaction, amazingly, like, are you happy with how much money you make, which is an easy thing to not be happy about, by the way, right. um, you know, is up in the mid to high 50s. And so when you look at when you do what Tom Bonder and I and you did back in 2022, which was to sort of broaden the aperture and look at a wider set of data, you get a very different understanding, just in the way the, the Biden approval rating was not as predictive in 2022 as many thought, this notion that everybody's down in the economy is false. And, and we have to do a better job at looking at all the data that's in front of us. And so I'm not surprised that we're going to see a rise in consumer sentiment because structurally people were already kind of there in their head that things were actually pretty good. But to your point, what, where they have where there's the lag has been with the collective, it's been with how we are all doing, not how people are doing. And that's because in part, I think during COVID, we got severed from the collective that we became... We came un, we became a little bit untrusted. We became more um, skeptical of the health yeah. of the collective, right? In during COVID, and also with Trump, and you know, with his wildness and insurrection and Russia and everything else. And so, yes, I think there's the normal lag that you do a very good job talking about here that happens with all this kind of stuff. But there's this other lag, right? Which right. is the severity of what happened with COVID, which it may take people a long time. To feeling like they're on firm ground again, and and I and I don't think we should be surprised by any of that. Actually, that trippy show will always be free with support from our advertisers, and we try to work with partners we believe in. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. When you keep what's stressing you bottled up, it can really start to drag you down. That's where therapy can help. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com trippy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot trippy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, no, and I think the other thing that you point out is the contrast, and we've talked about this too, the contrast between Trump, MAGA, and the chaos, you know, is going to become more stark here now that Trump is becoming sort of more on the playing field, right? I mean, look at the yeah. NATO comments, the... Yeah. The just taking uh, uh, shots at, at, at Nikki Haley's husband. I mean, the the stuff that he's doing now is is disturbing. Is stu- yeah, and and suddenly it's not all is Biden old. It's you know it's Trump. Uh, it, you know, I think the other thing that is not as evident in the media as it should be in the just in the daily discourse is how different Trump is today than he was in twenty twenty and yeah. twenty sixteen. You know, he's campaigning from the courthouse and not the White House. That alone is a substantial change in who he is. He doesn't have the ability to generate positive news for himself during the day by running a government the way that Biden does, right? Second is that he's clearly more diminished. You know, he's more dangerous and more extreme than he was, was in 2020. He is, his performance on the stump is far more erratic and disturbing than it was. And he's also making traditional political mistakes that often cause candidates to lose elections, things like coming out against the ACA, where he had no reason to do that. There was no upside for him to do that. And there was a massive downside. I mean, the ACA, his his attempting to end the ACA in 2017 was the central reason we had such a good midterm in 2018. I mean, they already know that, right? And so he's also making mistakes like that, that are the kind of mistakes traditional politicians make that cause them to lose elections. But finally, my last point is there are six things that voters are going to come to learn about Trump that they did not know in 2020. And this is really important because as you know, as a political professional, the amount of negatives he has are, is unprecedented. One is that he raped E. Jean Carroll in a department store dressing room, and that's been decided by a jury and by a judge, not by you and I. Second is that he's committed one of the largest financial frauds in American history and is about to be given a multi-hundred million dollar judgment any day. Third, is he led an insurrection against the United States and he tried to end American democracy for all time. And he's promised to finish the job if he comes into office in 2025. Fourth, is he stole America's secrets. He lied to the FBI. He shared those secrets with other people. These are all things that are known. We don't need a court case to determine that. Fifth, his family's taking more money, billions of dollars from foreign governments in ways that no other family in American history have. And then finally, he ended Roe. And so it's my view that those six things is going to, you know, he already lost the 2020 election. And now we're going to have these six things to bludgeon him with. And any one of these things could knock him out. He's going to have six that he's going to have to overcome. And he's just not skilled enough. He's a, he's a diminished figure. And he's just, I don't think he's going to be able to overcome the incredible weights that are dragging him down, which is another reason why I'm so optimistic. Yeah. And he didn't do all those things because he's old. You know, he did him because because he's absolutely obnoxious. I mean, you can't come up with words for for what he, the reason he does these things. And so I think I does I do think that gets into you know I, I, something I've talked about when we when we talk about the age stuff with Biden, and I know that's back in focus now, uh, thanks to the special counsel uh, report. But I, I think that you know. All the hand-wringing about it is kind of like missing all these points that we're making that, 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 you know, about, I mean, Biden has done an incredibly good job. The economy really is strong. Uh, he did lead us through the pandemic and get us to the other side. You know, all, all these manufacturing jobs coming back to the country. Uh, but the focus on the, on the age stuff, I think it diminishes what this fight really is about. It's about democracy and, and, and you know, the fate of having Trump uh, ever return to the, to the White House. I think what's really happening here is uh, the, the bias that uh, people have, they, they're, they're trying to, and a lot of the friendly fire that uh, the Biden uh, campaign suffered, I think, 
comes from some weird desire to fight a campaign we wished we were in instead of fighting the campaign that we are in. I mean, it's reality that Trump is this, you know, anti-democratic dictator wannabe versus, yes, a well-meaning and, yes, old Joe Biden, but he knows what the hell he's doing. And he is going to be the nominee. Therefore, let's all fight Trump. And I think that's, that's sort of where I'm coming down on, on where we are today. I want your take. I view this as desperation. The Republicans are desperate. You know, in the last few months, the successful Biden presidency has essentially caused all their major talking points to evaporate, right? They can't argue the economy's in recession or that inflation's too high or that crime is raging or that there's a war in energy. None of those things are true. Even if any of them were ever true, they're not true any longer. Right. And then they started really focusing on the area where they, the final remaining area that mattered to voters where they had an advantage, which was on border and immigration, which then they mismanaged and pissed away last week because their, their lead candidate, Donald Trump is an impulsive lunatic and took something that was an, an area, an issue that they had an enormous advantage on and they blew it. And now we're going to be able to bludgeon them for having now argued, we're the ones trying to solve the border problem. They're the ones fighting it and want to keep yeah. it chaotic. So even so then all they have left, if you believe my theory, right, all they got left is Biden's age and his capacity. And it's the only place that I think that they view this as being kind of a, where they have a clear shot. And it's why we have to establish, I think, so fundamentally, similarly to what you were talking about, that Joe Biden's been a successful president because of his age, not in spite of it, that his yeah. wisdom and experience, that maybe in a time of insurrection and COVID and chaos around the world, that having the most experienced person to ever go into the White House was a blessing for the nation and not a curse. And and I think we're going to have to connect the dots between, you know, his success as president and his age, because then we then take that away from them, too. It doesn't mean they won't be able to score points and there'll be videos of Joe Biden stumbling and shuffling and all that stuff. But, you know, compared to the kind of outrageous stuff that Trump is doing on a regular basis, I mean, the notion that in any way Joe Biden's um, age is somehow more dangerous to the country than the very manifest danger that Trump has presented to himself, arguing that he would both end American democracy for all time, he's made that very clear, and that he would destroy the global American-led order that has been central to our influence and our prosperity, influence all around the world and our prosperity here at home. And, and it's a direct shot in, in at, at sort of ending this American century that we've been in. Why in the world would we ever choose that path, right? And you know, right. and if you want to, if you're angry at Merrick Garland uh, for having allowed her to have dropped this cheap shot, and remember, when you're cheating, you're losing, right? I mean, Republicans keep cheating because they, they're losing all the time. Is that if you are, you should be mad, in my view, at Merrick Garland for something more, I think, consequential, which is that Donald Trump is now openly campaigning on destroying the country. And this guy, the fact that Merrick Garland waited 18 months to prosecute yeah. him has allowed this guy to run for re-election and potentially go back into the White House, given that anything can happen in an election, right? And the, and the security services and the people who protect our country have let us down by allowing all this to happen again without more aggressive countering. And, and we, we are going into this election with a much more wide open you know, social media. There's going to be far more disinformation than there was in 2020. I mean... It's as if all these things that we could have prepared for as a country, the security apparatus, the country have let us down. And, and I think it means that we're going to be in this wild election. And I think for voter, for your listeners, I think you have to realize that once you try to overturn an American election in this last election and in the previous election, you openly worked with the Russian government to influence that election, then then, you know, anything is possible. Right? Right. Like they've already they've already done kind of like the craziest political crimes that can be done in a democracy, which is to overturn an election. We can't be surprised by all the crazy stuff that's about to become and we have to prepare for it. Yeah, well, and the press could do a, could have done a, a much better oh, job to the both sides is I'm still it, to, I mean, it it's it, it, in a lot of ways, it's not just, you know, Garland, it's it's the entire it, like you said, it's it's the entire 
pro democracy. I mean, the 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 defenders of democracy, the institutions that and the guardrails have just failed. You know, just failed to rise to the occasion. Particularly, uh, I, I think journalism could be doing a much better job of making the instead of the constant age, age, age. You know, it, it, it's uh, you know whatever the new shiny. Thing that the you know approach that the the outrage machine on the right puts out there, the the press just runs with it. I do think I, I I agree with that, and I do think I have one kind of optimistic note in that regard is that I think in the last few weeks, many of the journalists that we follow on television, the prominent people we listen to, are when they've actually started watching Trump, this Trump, not the old Trump. I think they've been shocked. And what they're hearing and, you know, from him and what they're seeing with their own eyes and the way that he's speaking now and how how much more how more deranged and dangerous he sounds and how erratic and unhinged he is. I mean, I was on a Midas Touch show last week with Ben Marcellus and he played a bunch of clips of Trump that I hadn't seen that were shocking yeah. to me, shocking to me. Right. Like, I mean, I just don't listen to him that much, but. And I think what's happening is a journalist, and even this comment that happened on Saturday night, where he basically said he's encouraging Russia to attack our European partners and end the NATO alliance, which is the foundation of American security here and all you know all around the world. It is with it is probably the most outrageous thing that anyone ever running for president said in all of American history. And the good news is that it's being treated that way. I mean, I, I think that you know the media is actually really focusing on this now. And we all had to work the refs a little bit and make sure they did. But I think it I think it's getting, you know, it's in the center of the discourse now. In the way that to my to my optimism too, that I think you're starting to hear Republicans getting asked about, are you comfortable having a rapist, you know, be your leader and be the president of the country? I mean, I think this was a difficult conversation to have among civilized folks a few weeks ago. I think it's now becoming part of the daily discourse. And, you know, we have to just keep working really hard to not let the media go into this place of what I call a conceit, where they have a shorthand and a way of minimizing the ugliness of what we're all seeing every day, you know, whether they call it the, you know, his legal problems as opposed to all the crimes that he committed, right, which are right. different. It's a different way of saying it, or the fact that he it was described in NBC the other day he sexually abused E. Jean Carroll as opposed to sexually assaulted or or raped, right? Right. All of these efforts by the media to soften him down and 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 make it more palatable for their listeners. So they're not scaring people, right? And they're not, and also they're not living in the horror and the nastiness of all this, the awfulness of all this. I have some sympathy for that. But there also becomes a point where it becomes reckless and irresponsible because. Our yeah. jobs as as people who are in the business is that our obligation to the American people is to always tell the truth. It is our absolute obligation in a democracy to be relentless truth tellers. And by sugarcoating or downplaying or minimizing or normalizing what he's doing, you're not yeah. actually telling the truth, right? And and this is where we have to keep focused on this notion and this obligation. That we have to be truth tellers to our fellow citizens. It's what our job is, guys. I do want to get to some of the the tactical stuff, Joe. You talked about at the top, and 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 Simon, how are we, how or how should the Biden campaign be looking to implement some of this and make sure that that contrast that we keep talking yeah. about every week, the economic message every week. How do we make sure voters know that when they're going to go pull the lever? So I have this. What I wrote in the New Republic. Is you know I it's sort of channeling trippy here a little bit um, in that I made four recommendations they they had they came to me and a bunch of other people including Stuart Stevens and said you know what what should Joe Biden do now and at first I didn't want to do it because I don't want to be so presumptuous right to tell Joe Biden what to do but I laid out some things that I thought could be done that weren't being done on top of all the good things they're already doing right like they're making their case in the economy and those four things were one is well, two are campaign related and two are narrative and story and message related and agenda related. So the first two were, we need to reimagine the war room in this campaign and not view the war room as 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls and producing TikTok videos, but as two to three million 
which they're now doing as of yeah. last night. Yeah. And it was really good, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I applaud, we should all applaud them for them. The digital team has been let loose and they're go- and they're getting it done. And I'm really proud of them. Um, but to think of it as two to three million people wired together very much the way the Dean campaign was, you know, now, Joe, hard to believe 20 years ago. Yeah, I know. And to ask the our, the two to three million info, as I call them, info warriors, to recognize that if they can reach 10 people a day through their networks, that allows us to reach 20, 30 million people. And I think that the way that we start closing this loudness gap with the right is that we have to ask the American people themselves to do more, like creating a victory garden, an information victory garden, right? Where people are taking more responsibility for engaging in daily discourse, not just in campaigns, which we've gotten very good at, but in the in the day-to-day, right? And to um, and we can talk more about that, but the campaign has to design a campaign where they're when they understand who is working for them, it's not the field organizers in Michigan and Pennsylvania. It's two to three million people who want to get up every day, as Joe did, wired people into the campaign and allow and ask them to amplify the message of the campaign. The second is we need to build an unprecedented youth effort. I think our opportunities and challenges mm-hmm. for young people are unprecedented. I've called for building a campaign within a campaign that allows recognizing that young people live in a completely different information universe than older people. I don't think the youth campaign should be something that is derived from the overall messaging. I think it needs to be distinct and different and allowed to sort of go out and innovate and create something that's never been created before. And I think Trump is further away from young people than any modern Republican. And I think our opportunities are unprecedented there. And then finally, two quick points. One is, I do think that as Joe Biden starts to lay out his second term agenda in the coming weeks, he should say, you know, hey, look, I had one existential challenge when I came to office that was getting us through COVID. I did that successfully. Now I'm going to spend my last second term really grounding my second term in these two other existential challenges we face, which is saving democracy here and abroad and fighting climate change. And then finally, two smaller issues that I think are important. One is running on and developing a big reform agenda where he says, you know, I'm going to use my age and wisdom experience and all my years here to clean up Washington in a way that nobody who hasn't been here as long as I have will, and to really mean it and to try to really attack the corruption that's been exposed in recent years and to speak to the independent voters and young people who have deep skepticism about Washington. We need something that's big and bold and aggressive about how we're going to clean up the political system. And then finally, again, consistent with his age, right? I think we should talk about tackling uh, declining life expectancy in the United States, what it means that people are living longer in their lives and and can contribute for longer periods, and to really rethink the questions around age, lifespan, health, living good and satisfied lives, and create an interesting conversation that is next generation post-ACA about how do we live well, not just, and, and how do we tackle what I think is a central challenge we have as a country, which is we have declining life expectancy in the United States. While it's rising virtually everywhere else in the world, there's a lot of reasons for it. Fentanyl, lack of insurance. There should be a comprehensive agenda. Joe Biden could say, by the time I leave, I want our life expectancy to be on track and moving up again. And to help, I want to leave behind not just a, a wealthier country, but a healthier country. And it's something that I think would be enormously powerful because it also, you know, the people that are seeing declining life expectancy are Republicans for the most part in rural areas. And it would be a bridge moment for him to be able to reach into parts of the population in the country that may not be available to us in the campaign. So those last two things I raise are ways for me that I see how we can expand our coalition, grow our coalition, reach beyond the core Democrats that we need to grow and hopefully get to 55% and have this election be a blowout and a clear repudiation of MAGA and not just something, not just, you know, stumble across the finish line and win as we did in 2020. Yeah. As I read your analysis where you said, if you, if you hold all the 2020 results in place and change only one thing, get 18 to 44 year old voters uh, voting at the same rate as their distribution of the population, Biden wins by 10 points uh, in 2024. So, you know, and and I think climate change, I mean, I think big, bold on climate change, making that uh, uh, and the reform stuff for sure could really help achieve that kind of, 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 of goal, as well as, you know, engaging 3 million Americans in 
being the amplifiers, the info warriors, because that that age group would be, I, I think, a pretty ripe target for those three to four million Americans who are part of that info warrior group, making sure that the climate change stuff and you know the other issues are are, are out there. So it's a it's a it's a a, a pretty well thought out um, piece and and analysis by Simon and and uh, uh, we'll definitely have a link to it in our show notes. If you haven't read it, you should, and you should. <laughs> the Hopium Chronicles again. We'll link to that too. But uh, I want to continue the conversation. But I want to make sure our listeners know that the show notes will have uh, links to the things we're talking about that you've you've put out there, Simon. Joe, I want to I want to and, and again as I'm a student of Trippy and and learned have learned so much from you uh, over the years. I want to just reflect on one thing, which is that Joe Biden gave this very compelling speech in January um, about the fight for democracy. And he said, I need all Americans to help to join me in this fight. Well, in the campaign, he can't then say, I need everyone in the seven states <laughs> to join me in that fight. And all of you who are not in the seven states, you don't get to be part of this fight for yeah. democracy. I mean, we, we if this is this existential fight, if 2024 is this existential fight. And he's got to create a campaign that allows everyone to actually go fight with him, regardless of where they live. And the truth is, with Zoom now and remote texting and remote phone calling and postcarding, there have been innovations that have allowed people to, no matter where they live, to participate and work in swing battleground areas. It's one of the reasons we've been winning elections all across the country, because we have you know, we have 4 million donors in the Democratic Party, and, and there are 4 million people already taking action on our behalf. And I think that if we can get half of those people to take more than an act of donating 25 bucks and to become info warriors, to become, you know, as I say, proud patriots who love their country and are taking this fear they have of their democracy slipping away and they're going to work, they're putting the head down. And we now have the biggest and strongest grassroots that we've ever had in the Democratic Party. And it's why we keep performing at the upper end of what's possible is because we have this huge chunk of Americans who just decided that, you know, their freedoms and their democracy are not going to slip away on their watch and they're going to, and they're going to work. And it's been enormously um, inspiring to be, to speak to many of these groups, to be connected to them through Hopium. And it really is, Joe, to be very frank, a continuation of your original vision for Dean World back in you know 2003, where you built the first campaign that we ever had, where Americans had a meaningful way of really participating in their politics, um, in, in it, other than just giving 25 bucks. You tried to create that kind of system through Dean. I think you were wildly successful. I think we're still only now, all these years later, learning how to, to make it real, you know, using the tools that we have today. Yeah, I still think that uh, too many in the Democratic side learned from the Dean campaign that emails emails can raise money and and <laughs> and, and and not didn't grasp enough of that idea of info warriors of you know of of empowering the millions of people out there to 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 actually be connected and engaged in the campaign and be part of it and so. I, and I do think the, the one thing I did want to ask you, though, because we haven't touched on it, is have you, I mean, because you know, we've talked about it in, in you know, one of the groups we're in uh, with, that you put together uh, of people who think about this stuff. There seems to be that suddenly the Republican Party can't raise hard money. I mean, it's just in a yeah. it's just in hmm. some kind, some kind of bind where the big donors that they count on are not not necessarily coming through and they didn't, you know, people are just, they're, they're just starting to have money problems, I think. Well, this is really significant. And, and it isn't, again, this is like one of these stories that is not discussed enough, is that in 2022, when you and I and Tom Bonnier and others were saying, I think Democrats were going to do better than everybody thought, one of the reasons why I thought that was that if you looked at where fundraising was as of June 30th in 2022, we, our candidates in the battlegrounds had a four to five to one cash on hand advantage over Republicans. We've never had that before. And the Republican candidates, in part because I think the traditional grassroots funding base of the Republican Party is not MAGA. Right? I mean, there's been a hostile ideological takeover of one of the two political parties. And what's happened is, is that 
the MAGA-led Republican Party can't win elections, can't raise our dollars, um, has candidates that are way out of the mainstream and can't pull their coalition back together at the other end, right? They they bleed mm-hmm. Republicans and voters and either into not voting or voting for us. And that MAGA just doesn't work as a political project for a party that was the party of Lincoln and Reagan for so many years. And that and that, you know, what they're left with and what you're seeing is that they're left become they've become more reliant on a couple hundred oligarchical donors. And we've become more reliant in the great vision of Joe Trippi in 2003 on everyday people for our labor and our money, which has further aligned our politics with the middle class and everyday Americans and patriotism and love of country. And it's further pushed them into a place where they're more reliant on a couple hundred oligarchs. And it and it's manifesting in the actual politics of the two parties, right? I mean, we are a party fighting for democracy with millions of Americans going to work, you know, as good, proud patriots who are doing their work, and they become more reliant on a bunch of of a couple hundred oligarchs. And as evidenced even by the ridiculous RFK ad that yeah. aired in the Jeez. Super Bowl, which by the way, he's already denounced, right? So within the last three days, if we can just mention what's happened with this ridiculous candidate, RFK. One is that this super PAC was on Friday, we uncut, it was the DNC filed a FEC complaint against the super PAC because the super PAC was starting to do ballot and um, getting, trying to work to get him on the ballot in various states, which is blatantly illegal. And, you know, there's certain things you can do with super PACs, other things you can't, right? This is one of the things you can't do. The campaign actually has to do this. So the Kennedy, this Kennedy super PAC was already operating in this lawless, illegal, lunatic MAGA fashion. And then, you know, three days later, Kennedy's got to denounce his own super PAC and apologize to the Kennedy family. What a shit show, right? Like, I mean, really unbelievable shit show here. But it goes back to this basic point, which is that they are now servants of an oligarchical political class in a way that gives lessons there. It takes them further and further away from the electorate and makes it harder and harder for them to win elections. And so I do think the Republican Party is in sort of a bit a bit of a political death spiral, if I can just finish. One is that, you know, Trump led a party-wide effort to overturn the election. There have been now dozens and dozens of Republic, prominent Republicans indicted all across the country, particularly in battleground states. The RNC is broke. State parties are collapsing all across yep. the country. Their candidates in the in the Senate races are not raising any money, and our candidates are raising huge amounts of money, right? So you're right that there is this huge collapse happening of the Republican Party as an institution, um, and that you know even you know so this is it's a big issue, and I think it's connected to MAGA. MAGA is ugly; it's unattractive even for Republicans. They don't want to go there. Yeah, I, I, I want to get back to the that super PAC for RFK Jr. because it turns out half of the funding came from a member of the Mellon family right. who also massively funded Trump. Right. So, you know, it's like, what's, you know, it's pretty obvious what's going on here, you know, <laughs> uh, which also gets back to something we've talked about. You know, Trump's going to get 44, 45% of the vote and he needs these third party. He needs RFK Jr. and these guys to to bleed votes away from Biden, um, to to keep it in a 40, you know, where 45, 46% of the vote can actually win, which happened in in 2016. But when you, you know, it's starting to become really obvious, particularly on the RFK debacle. I mean, just a a shit show. Um, That, you know, a lot of it is, is, uh, like you said, the oligarchs that are supporting Trump are, are, putting dark money into a lot of these third-party efforts. I'll say two things about the third-party stuff. One is that um, we're blessed with the fact that the three that are running right now are all obviously ridiculous and and terrible candidates. And the chance of them mounting into anything really significant is is remote. And um, But obviously what they're doing is they're each targeting various demographics and they're going to try to ankle bite you know, Biden to death and bleed him to death through a million little cuts, right? But I think that all of them are going to struggle to become big and meaningful. And I think it's going to be harder. And also, there's a chance, in my view, that for voters, they look at all of them in the way they looked at the Republican second-tier candidates, which is they all are kind of silly. 
And yeah. if there and there isn't a single one, and they all get kind of lumped into kind of a silliness thing, right? But I think the thing that you know better than all than I do is the most significant third party, rogue party, splinter party movement in America are the never Trumpers and the former Republicans. They've you know proven to already have been very consequential in the 2020 election, the 2022 right. election. And I think that you know what happens with Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and Stewart and all of your friends, Joe, you know, how this congeals into something powerful that creates a permission structure for even more Republicans to abandon the Republican Party than they did in 2020 and 2022, because the threat is greater. Trump is more extreme, more outrageous, more offensive, more lawless, more ugly than he's ever been. The chance for us to grow that former Republican in this temporary pro-democracy coalition that you talk about all the time, I think the opportunity there is huge. And, you know, we have to, as Democrats, for those of us on listening who are Democrats, we have to create a very big seat at our table for all these former Republicans and and, and, we really, sure do. and make sure that we are expressing our, our, our thanks and our gratitude, the courage they're showing for not just leaving politics altogether when their party's gone crazy, but have stayed in the fight. You know, they are, they were essential, all of them, to our victories in 2022, the Lincoln Project, all these guys, Lincoln Project and Liz Cheney. But imagine if Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney are campaigning openly with Biden in, in October, November. It could make an enormous difference in terms of saying, look, just for now, you just can't go there. And, you know, after 2024, you know, what's been interesting to me, Liz Cheney has been talking about this. She's openly arguing that the Republican Party as a brand itself may not be salvageable after yeah. Trump, which is an amazing thing. But and so I think that we have it's my view that one of the one of the reasons the media is also kind of woken up to Trump's weakness and how he's historically weak was that NBC poll taken in Iowa the Sunday before the Iowa caucus, where more Haley voters said that they were going to be voting for Biden in the general election than Trump. We've never seen polling like that in a very long time, where so many members of one party were already in January ready to vote for the other party, <laughs> you know, if yeah. they, depending on the election results. And so I think there's already data and evidence that, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the Republican Party is open to us and we got to go get them, you know. Yeah. No, I've been saying, I mean, you know this because we talked yeah. about and we, you know, I've been saying that Trump's far weaker than the press, uh, you, you know, and the and, and the pundits realize. I think you're right that they're starting to to get it. I mean, it, it's all been the, you know, focus on on Biden's weaknesses and not on, on Trump's. Right. But uh, he's much weaker than than people think. Uh, I, I've agreed with you, I think. We, we, you started talking about, was there is there a way to get to 55 this, yeah. you know, in this cycle? Um, I'm not quite that, I, I think 53, you know, but hey, you know, he, he Biden is the only one who can get into the 50s, whether it's 51% like he did in 2020 or higher. But it, again, um, I just think, you know, and even now Nikki Haley is actually starting, I think, uh, I, you know, to take Trump on, um, and, you know, I've always thought that if she did, you know, sort of sustain some kind of race that, uh, that it would weaken him further. And I, you're starting to even see some signs that she would, again, his attack on her husband, uh, you know, serving our country, um, in AFRICOM, um, uh, is, you know, it, it, his attack on where is he like, like he's left her or something. I and mean, it was just a tr just incredibly bad for a guy who's losing women massively. I mean, the gender gap now with women is just off the charts. I'm not sure that this fight with Nikki's going to help him. So I, I'm agreeing with you. I think he's he's getting weaker, and I think Biden only gets stronger from here. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things that we're about to witness is that Biden has the ability to generate positive news every day, right? He's the president of the United States. They're using the White House very effectively. Trump is just a load of darkness and ugliness every day, right? I mean, I, th I think that, you know, what's been interesting is there is this, these questions about Biden's ability to run the election. And I, I think the questions are really more about Trump, right? I mean, if, if yeah. the news coverage, I, this whole idea that well, he's dominating the news because there's trials and everything. Are you telling me that anybody who's watching that who's not a Trump voter views him 
being in court for any reason as a positive thing. Right? I yeah. mean, it, it doesn't matter where the polls are right now. Polls are, you know, are not predictive, you know, it's still early. We don't have a oh, yeah. going on, but I, I think the, the, I, I just have, as somebody who's been doing this like you, Joe, too long, a long time, decades and decades <laughs> too and long, decades, definitely too, too long. Too long. So now part of the problem and not part of the solution <laughs> yeah. anymore is that, um, you know, how in the world does, does Donald Trump create any kind of noise at any point that would bring over no. somebody who hadn't voted for him before? No. And, and, and it's just, at- yeah, it's just, I mean, he's like, no. The ugliest thing we've all ever seen in the history of the world. And like, we have to stop, you know, pretending whether it's the Wizard of Oz or the Emperor has no clothes. I mean, whatever your historic analogy is, this guy is the ugliest well, candidate to run for president in our history. And I think yeah. the majority of the American people are going to end up there pretty soon, you know? You no, know, because, because, you know, Simon, the thing is, he has to get more outrageous to get everybody's attention. So that's why he goes out and does, hey, I'll give Putin a, you know, carte blanche, take out NATO, attack our, attack our allies. Why? Because guess what that's going to do? Create that out. You know, it's, it's kind of like the more he tries to get attention now, the crazier he has to be to get that attention, to get can, that can same I, sugar high that he gets. Can I comment on that for a second? Because <laughs> I think this is actually really important, is that he is demonstrating a degree of impulsivity and lack of uh, discipline that is corroding his candidacy, whether it was coming out for the ACA, whether it was brought, you know, repeatedly taking credit on camera for ending row, these kinds of statements, right? He is. I was on a podcast with somebody the other day who who was a Republican who said that Trump in 2016 was incredibly disciplined. He read his teleprompter. He didn't veer from it. Now, because he's, I think, in significant cognitive decline, um, his impulsivity or the amount of drugs he's taking, whatever it is, right? His impulsivity is become dominant, right? It's become. And he's not disciplined and he's saying crazy stuff and he's doing crazy things. I mean, he's doing things that are going to make it, like I said, coming out against the ACA was an impulsive mistake. It was, there was no reason for him to have done that. He just can't help himself. And the problem is that kind of candidate doesn't win, right? Like if you're continually giving the other side ammunition to push you further and further away from the electorate, which he's now doing on a daily basis because of everything you described, right? Is that he's now not just being outrageous; he's being outrageous in a ridiculous and damaging right. way you, that is that is you know hurting his candidacy. And it's why when I look at this, right, I look at this, I'm like, we're going to kick his ass this year. I mean, you know, we should kick his ass. Yeah. And I'm not scared of him. We all have to stop giving him power over us that he doesn't have. You know, one of the things uh, that it, that brings up is early in this this campaign year, I thought of an old slogan that uh, in Tom Bradley's races, uh, race for governor of California. We lost it, but I was a deputy campaign manager. But I think it really applies to to Joe Biden and might be, a, you know, this sort of the experienced old guy thing. It's, you know, Joe Biden doesn't make a lot of noise. He just gets things done. And uh, that's what that's what that's the slogan was. And it's like, you know, he Again, in contrast to the noise and the chaos of Trump, our guy doesn't make a lot of noise. He just gets things done. Yeah, he's old. Yeah, he's he's well-meaning. But guess what? Yeah, and you don't see him screaming all the time. He doesn't make a lot of noise, but he just he gets it done for the American people, the the, the economy, the job. I mean, the job creation. I mean, the thing you you pointed out long ago and keep doing every month is the number of jobs under Democratic yeah. presidents that have yeah. been created and like the abysmal numbers for, you know, Trump being the only one who lost jobs on his, on yeah. his watch. It's just, uh, it's just, but I mean, he does deliver, he does get it done and now he can get it done on climate. And that's what I'm saying. I think it's, there's, there's well, something to that. Well, let's that, tie this back to sense. the question that Alex asked us earlier, right? Which is that what you're saying is really important. And if 2022 was an election where all the incumbents won basically everywhere, the party in power won, incumbents won, governors won all across the country. Most governors' approval ratings are over 50, which is highly unusual. Most senators are over 50, which is also highly unusual. There's not a throw the bums out kind of mentality right now in our 
political system. And if you listen to Trump, right, Trump's the essential argument they're making is that Joe Biden created a recession and high inflation failed president, so we need to change course. I think that the impulse of the electorate now is opposite of chaos and change. They want, you know, right. we had we had the chaos of COVID. We're still getting back to the other side where, you know, it's like the end of World War II. And the Republicans are misreading the room. They've been misreading the room for years on this, I think. Um, and it's why Joe Biden, the increasing success of the Biden presidency and the increasing understanding of the success is evaporating all of their, and is causing all yeah. of their, their, their fundamental rationale of what they're doing, which is things are terrible and we need big changes, is exactly opposite of where the voters are, which is that things are really freaking crazy. We want to, you know, focus on Little League and cooking dinners with our family and, you know, not listening to Trump go on and on and rant and rant. We don't want that. Yeah. We so you know, we we saw that TV show. We canceled it. We don't want it to come back. And I, I think that they are positioned completely wrong yeah, on I the agree. moment. And, and they don't have and Trump has no other play. Right. There isn't a recalibration of Trumpism between now. There isn't any way to put lipstick on the pig. There's no way to you know, create an olive branch of moderate voters. They're, they've like DeSantis did, right? Who just pushed himself in a place that became impossible for him to come back into yeah. any kind of reasonable place. Trump is irredeemable, and and I and I and you know whether the other you know I've been using Wizard of Oz, uh, Emperor has no clothes, or maybe it's the Titanic, and and you know the iceberg is up there, and the Republican Party is the Titanic crashing into the iceberg, and they and the thing is they see it, they know it's coming. And they think they're going to avoid it. And but I think it's far more likely that we win that regard, you know, with Joe Biden at the helm, right, uh, that we win by closer to 10 than, to, you know, two or three. And and I think we've got to keep our nerve, recognize that this is going to be a long. This is what you were saying over the last couple of days, Joe, is that, you know, this is going to be a long campaign and we're going to have good days and we're going to have bad days. And, you know, the key is to not, you know, to not get rattled. And the way I deal yeah. with this is when I get up in the morning every day. I have this basic mantra I say to myself, which grounds me, which is Joe Biden's been a good president. The country's better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all across the country. And they have Trump. And 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 I use that as a way to prevent myself from getting blown around and to stay in this basic orientation that, hey, man, we're doing a good job. They got a crazy guy. Let's go out and kick their ass and keep winning elections. Guys, that is a great place to end. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Thanks, Simon, for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to That Trippy Show. Get more of Simon's writing at hopiumchronicles.com. This podcast will always be free and with support from our advertisers. And as part of Resolute Square, check out the latest at resolutesquare.com slash trippy. Please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail. Dot com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Alex. See you all next week, folks. Mm-hmm.